0: Good morning. So today we continue with the Diamond Sutra, nearing the end of the Sutra, and uh, we are on Chapter 29. Last time we began uh, with Chapter 29 and uh, did not get very far, so I'd like to go back to the beginning of the chapter and uh, begin from there today. So, chapter 29. <clears throat> Furthermore, Subhuti, if anyone should claim that the Tathagata goes or comes or stands or sits or lies on a bed, Subhuti, they do not understand the meaning of my words. And why not, Subhuti? Those who are called Tathagatas do not go anywhere, nor they come from anywhere. Thus they are called Tathagatas, Arhans, fully enlightened ones. So, uh, Bill Porter at the beginning commented on that. From the, be- the very beginning of this sutra, the focus has been on the Buddha's body. And this sutra can be read as a meditation on the Buddha's body. But which body? It has sometimes seemed... It has sometimes seemed like the Buddha has been playing the old shell game with Subuti. Now you see me, now you don't. Under which shell is the real Buddha? As early as chapter 5, the Buddha asked Subuti if he could see his body. And with this koan, he began Subuti's education in the perfection of wisdom. Obviously, the Buddha was not referring to his physical body, which Subhuti knew was empty of any self-nature and merely an apparition. But to which body was the Buddha referring to? And why did he refer to bodies at all? Subhuti was known for his attachment to emptiness. Hence, the Buddha sought to lead him beyond emptiness by considering his reward body, which is a a reflection of the Buddha's selflessness. The Buddha also urged Subhuti to cultivate his own reward body, which he called his body of merit, by resolving to liberate all beings without attachment to any being or to any self. However, while selflessness is the necessary cause of such bodies, selflessness itself turns out to be birthless no self has ever existed hence one cannot transcend what does not exist how do we liberate those who are not even here to be liberated thus the buddha reward body and the bodhisattva's body of merit turn out to be no bodies no bodies that arise from this teaching If we wish to follow in the Buddha's footsteps, we need to find the Buddha's real body, his uncreated, indestructible body, his diamond body. In this chapter, the Buddha finally lifts the shell. Now, uncreated is naturally indestructible. Only what is created is able to be destructed, to be removed. If it's not there, how do we remove it? Chao Ming titled this as The Utter Stillness of Perfect Deportment. And Hui Neng says, Going and coming, sitting and lying down, all accord with reality, thus follow a chapter on the utter stillness of the Buddha's perfect deportment. And this is what we speak of when we talk about seamless existence, seamless, gapless, or being merged, being aligned with this, capital T, this, or wholeheartedness. Or the, the, real, or the, the deep understanding of wholeheartedness has to do with being aligned with reality. And in reality itself, there nothing exists unto itself. Te Ching says, Though it had been said that there is no self or recipient of merit, when the Tathagata appeared walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, was this not the Tathagata's self? This is because the view that his three bodies were both one and many has not yet been eliminated and because the undifferentiated nature of the Dharma body has not yet been understood. So we were going to go back to that in a few minutes Um, in relation to sameness and differences, which we chant every Sunday morning. Uh, I want to go back to what Bill Porter was saying here. The Buddha uses two pulsings of the word Tathagata here. Reading Tathagata, we have thus come, where thus refers to what the Buddha calls suchness, and come refers to the Buddha's apparition body and his appearance among mankind. Since the Chinese prefer to emphasize the Buddha's compassion, they invariably translate Tathagata as July, thus come. Here, however, such a translation will be a mistake. The Buddha does not come. Reading Tathagata, the word also means thus go and emphasizes the Buddha's transcendence of his physical body and full realization of his reward body, but neither does the Buddha go. For if all dharmas are selfless and birthless, can anything be said to truly come or go? As the Sutra nears its end, the Buddha finally tells Subhuti he was mistaken if he thought anything took place at all in the great city of Shravasti or in Anathapindata Garden where the teachings were given. And he was also mistaken to think he could follow in the Buddha's footsteps when in fact there are no footsteps. So, let's uh, open it up for a few minutes and, and examine that. So, how do we... What does it mean to connect sameness and differences? We chant, uh, and many koans refer to that, a lot of the teachings are pointing at the two truths, right? You know, that it is the same and at the same time it is different. And it is a problem, it creates a problem as well, because if we are talking about two things, we are conceptually seeing two things that we need to merge. Or we need to either occupy one or the other. That by itself creates a trap. So how do we transcend that? How do you transcend that? So Rezan uh, Al-Shuso wrote uh, a few words about this. Not directly about this, but about the transient and the constant. Right? So how about, uh, and say a few words about that, in relation to the Sutra. You are muted. Okay. Good
1: morning. Good morning, everyone. And this is our practice all the time of, um, being here when there's nowhere to be, um, and, uh, enjoying the bright sunny day when there's no sun and no day and no bright. Um, the, um, uh, schizophrenia of always being in this world of multiplicity, um, uh, it's um it's i don't know it's the human condition of um always going back and forth between the one and the many um but there's no um there's no solution that um in, in attempting to find a solution the solution just seems to be our moving back and forth um, Mm -hmm. between the two. Uh, That's it.
0: That's it. (laughs) So, there is no solution. Well, is there a problem?
1: Um, At the beginning, we think there is. Mm -hmm. Um, And the... uh, some days, there certainly seems to be. Um, but I think, um, I don't know, the more we practice, the more um, it, it seems to be a rhythm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that um, we have moments of one and moments of the other. Uh, and that, um, you know, like the sun is um, becoming more prominent and then the sun is going to become less prominent. It seems to be there are moments in which we are more differentiated and moments in which we are, um, we can realize the wholeness better.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but it seems to be our condition to, to be in that sort of rhythm, which um, can certainly seem like a problem,
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, but also can seem like that's just, but we are. I mean, that's what it
0: means to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of it is included in what it means to be human. Uh, very much. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the when we talk about wholeheartedness, and I think we, we do need to connect this to what we talk about in relation to the theme of this angle. When we talk about wholeheartedness, we talk about a lot more than just Pay attention to what you're doing and uh, be fully with that. We are talking about recognizing the gaps that we, uh, the conceptual gaps that we create, and and also to recognize that the the challenges, the difficulties, the issues arise from those in those gaps. We, if we are, when we are wholehearted, when we are uh, experiencing. Uh, unity or being uh, unified with this moment or with this, then there is no question and when there is no question, we are not obsessed with trying to answer it. We are obsessed with trying to answer questions because we think that there is a question. But is there a question? And if there is a question, who is asking it? So we have to create the one who is asking before we create a question. This is why we turn it around and look deeper and deeper and deeper into that. What is this? What does it come from? why Why is there a notion of an issue? There are challenges, there's no doubt, and there is suffering, there's no doubt. But is that an issue? In other words, is that a hindrance? Are we stuck? When we feel stuck, are we stuck? What is liberation? yoga?
5: Well, in terms of what you just said, uh, I feel like it's um, an arising of a challenge of something and then the reaction to it Is what we get stuck in?
0: The reaction to it, or as we call it, the second error, the reaction to what happens. Yes. To the interaction.
5: That's that's where that's the mud that we get stuck in. Yes. Over and then we start spinning our wheels. And then it's because of this, it's because of that. And then we don't go anywhere. We don't start moving forward and finding a solution because we're so stuck on the problem mm-hmm. or the quote unquote problem, mm-hmm. which, which is probably not there in the first place because it's not a problem. It's really just an arising of karma.
0: Yes, it's just the way things manifest. Thank you.
5: Thank
6: you. And Kai. Uh, yes, and maybe another way to phrase this that I've heard elsewhere um, is that there is no issue. The only issue is your orientation to the issue.
0: So creating... That's
6: very helpful in a simple phrasing.
0: Creating parameters. Creating parameters and directions and sides. So I am seeing this from my perspective, from my position. And my position is fixed because I am here and the world revolves around me, right? So I am fixed and everything else is moving. And from the fixed position, I have that view, right? So if I am what I'm seeing, or if I and what I'm seeing are non-dual, Then what? Yeah. Good morning. Morning.
2: Um, I thought that last sentiment about not being able to follow in the Buddha's footsteps because there are no footsteps, that really resonated with me. Um and it did remind me. I've been trying to work with waiting for this theme of wholeheartedness, um, and when I'm um, when I'm waiting, it's um, I'm trying to. So for the past couple days, I've been experiencing a lot of pain, um, due to some known factors and some unknown factors, but it's very uncomfortable. And so it makes, it's, uh, makes me feel very unsettled inside and experiencing it at the beginning of Ango, um, it, uh, changed my daily Zazen practice and, um, I, was uh i missed a couple days and i remember often having this thought that was something like um i like i can't be i can't be zen right now because i'm so uncomfortable um and so there's a way of waiting for to be comfortable again in order to practice Mm -hmm. And something, the piece about there being no footsteps reminds me of this way of when I feel unsettled, remember, like that feeling of this is in of itself, the same thing, I can say that there is something that feels more uh, differentiated or separate within my being. Mm -hmm. And yet that is still part of the same as everything else. Um, I like the idea of the Buddha not coming or going, because I think intrinsically tied into the idea of waiting is that I'm waiting to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And even before I practiced Zen, I used to tell people that, um, in order to be happy, I felt like everyone was having a good time at a house party and I just didn't have the right key or the right address. Mm. Um, and it's something that I realized now in this ongoing that is I still think about. Um, and I thought about it yesterday as well because um sometimes I trip there's a there's a door that we keep locked on um, I work at in a shop in retail. so there's a door that we've been keeping locked because we have to control the number of customers who can come into the store to maintain social distancing guidelines. Um, And it's been a constant source of frustration for me and my coworkers that people uh, don't read the sign that the door is locked and they need to knock to be let in. They will yank on the door and now the door is broken. (laughs) Basically, it doesn't work so well. And my coworker yesterday was um, mourning it because she was like, the door doesn't work anymore because people keep yanking on it. How annoying. You know, She was feeling um, really heartbroken, I think which I understand and I also have another understanding, which is that there is no going from wholeness to brokenness. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense to me that the door is broken and that people yanked on it and that people had a hard time adjusting to something that was different. To mm-hmm. That is part of how I understand our being to be.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. So, no footsteps to follow. So, what do we follow? If there are no footsteps to follow, all we are left with to follow is this. Right? That's That's what it comes back to, it comes down to, or boils down to, right? Which is why being wholehearted with this is so important, because that is the component. That's what we are looking at, the component of, I'm going to align with this, but here's the problem. I don't know this. Or what if I don't know this? And that, that's what enables us to flow. As long as I hold on to knowing, I hold on to a self. As long as I'm holding on to a self, I'm holding on to, a, to the other, right? So I know, and the, if we remove the component of knowing, then we allow ourselves to flow, we allow ourselves to be in alignment with what is. It's the insistence of I know. What if I don't know? What if I am not knowing? Not I don't know. I am not knowing. Can we function like that? Yes, Enkai.
6: This, sorry y'all, this also reminded me um, when Elle brought up that, you know, the the footsteps piece um, made sense or there was something there to, to connect with. Um, it's also right when we read that, it reminded me of the chant that we just went through that said that if you don't see the way, uh, then you don't even see it as you walk on it. Mm-hmm. And that um, the notion of there being footsteps you know, for example, maybe in a different religious tradition, there is some role model that you have to follow after, but that what happens when that person, um, you know, or what happens when something comes up in your life that didn't happen to that person. So then how can you follow in their footsteps? Because we don't know what they would have done in that moment. You can like maybe like guess and figure it out, but you're like, you are here in this moment. Um, and then there's no footsteps to follow because it's just whatever's arising in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that is the way the way is just the, this now, um, rather than I need to mimic something else. Um, so that's how I understood that part.
0: That's why it's a transmission outside words and letters and scriptures and books and, uh, there's, there are no, there are no rules to follow. Right? There is no uh, book to look at, to keep referring to, or to go back to. This is brand new. All I know is about what happened up to now, and even that is very limited. But all the knowing has to do with what was up to now. Right now, at this moment, it's unknown. It's just unknown. So instead of freaking out, about that, can we actually be encouraged by the fact that this is unknown? Can we rest in the unknown? And then allow that to guide us rather than what we think we know. The, 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 the solution, this is actually the solution, is because if we turn again and again to this as an unknown, then naturally the, the, the made-up self, the conceptual self, Fades away because the, the conceptual self has everything to do with what happened up to now. From this point on, it's gone. Or here is gone. That's why we insist on carrying it around, which is a very heavy load to walk around with. That's why we're so heavy. So to lighten up is to actually merge with this and not know anything about it and be okay with not knowing anything about it. And we fade away as soon as we do that. In fact, we come to life as soon as we do that. So not going, not coming. Just this. Anyone else? Well, yes.
3: Just real quick, while hijacking the uh, microphone being open, I'll, uh, I'll try to find this and share it on the forum, but uh, there's, a, there's commonly a piece of text at the front of the Zen temples that says... Uh, watch your step,
0: mm-hmm.
3: which, which most people take as caution, mm-hmm. but the actual translation is look under your feet. So, mm-hmm. uh, which speaks to all of this, but I'll try to find it, the actual uh, calligraphy and post it.
0: Yeah, look. Reza. Um,
1: <clears throat> in keeping with the, the rest of the sutra that we've already read, um, because there are no footsteps is why we can follow the footsteps. Um, it's, as you were just saying, it's the the self in the middle of this that makes things problematic. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that you're not reading an instruction book, you can then read the instruction book because it's no longer an instruction book. It's, it's now um, you reading, about yourself, Mm -hmm. it's you uh, engaging with the language that is already yours. Um, Mm -hmm. So that, um, that rhythm that was set up in the beginning of the sutra, because these things don't exist um, in the sense of our um, everyday self and its expectations, it then becomes available to us as a resource to help us um, as we go through.
0: Mm-hmm. So Thank you. So little by little, the Sutra eliminates all tracks, all traces, all parameters, all standards, right? Little by little, it obliterates all, everything, right? All parameters, all sense of parameters. And when there are no parameters, there's nothing but an enlightened being, which is merged with everything else. No parameters, if there are no parameters, How can we judge? How can we compare?
1: But and then you can read the Diamond Sutra.
0: And then you can, yes. Or you can enjoy reading the Diamond Sutra. Right. (laughs) Yes, without squinting. Uh, Okay, so I'm gonna keep reading and we can talk about it. So Mohwinang says, Tatagatas do not come, nor do they not not come. And that's not it's not there to trap us. It's actually there to free us. So, so it's important to know how to read this, right? You know, logically speaking, if, if we only look at it through a logical way of thinking or being, then we can get trapped. We have to expand. We have to hear those words or, or, or feel those words in the gut, in the center, or with the whole body, rather than just with the thinking mind. So, things are not as they are, nor are they otherwise, right? Do you remember that statement? So, they also not not come, they do not not go, nor do not not go. They do not sit, nor they not not sit. And the same with lying down. In the four perfect deportments, so that's, those are the four modes of the Buddha, right? Lying down, uh, sitting, standing, walking, which is basically what, the way we function, all of us. So the four uh, perfect deportments of walking, standing, sitting, lying down, they remain utterly still, such are Tathagatas, or such are we, by nature. Wang Xingqiu says, a real Buddha has no appearance, thus he cannot be described as coming, going, sitting, or lying down. If he would, if he could be described, he would have an appearance. Thus, the Buddha says, such a view is at odds with his teaching. What the Buddha means by Tathagata is the real Buddha, and the real Buddha has no form. Moreover, it fills the sky and the world, and how could it come and go? So, the green mountain always moving its legs, as you remember that from a few weeks ago. The green mountain is always moving. Everything is always moving. You are the green mountain moving. Now these are words from koans, right? But And koans seem illogical. And that's good. Because logic has to do with parameters. And we have to go beyond parameters. In fact, in logic we find ourselves. Outside of logic, I don't know who I am. So, we run back to logic to explain myself to myself so, so I can make sense of this. Do we have to make sense of this? Do we have to figure it out? Well, those are questions we have to sit with. Te Ching says, Subuti still regards the one whose deportment is perfect, whether moving or still, as the Tathagata. But this is to hold the view of coming and going. How could the Tathagata come and go? At this point, the attachment ends and his preferences are forgotten. And movement and stillness are no longer seen as different. Of course, the mind sees or we see movement as opposed to stillness, stillness as opposed to movement. That differentiation exists only in the mind, as fixed. In reality, movement and stillness are not true. So, and stillness is no longer seen as different, but truly so, and in the realm of the real, which is the final mystery. However, his distinction of oneness and multiplicity has not been forgotten, and the meaning of one body with three forms has not yet been understood. Thus, in the next chapter, atoms and worlds are used to break through this. All right, so, it goes into the way we see, the way we, or the way the mind, sees reality as differentiated, as separated. Or ourselves and others. I am here, you are there, on the other side of the screen. How can it be one if it's many? The Complete Enlightenment Sutra says, Do clouds float by or does the moon move? Does the boat drift past or does the shore move? The moon doesn't move and the shore doesn't move. Likewise, the Tathagata's true body neither moves nor stays still. Its appearance and disappearance are visual errors. chifu says, It was said that the Tathagata cannot be seen by means of attributes and yet he does not lack attributes. Attributes are basically the appearance of dharmas. This does not mean to get rid of appearance but only to remain detached from dharmas. This means that when we see that dharmas have no self and can accept the dharmas have no self, prajna will appear. And prajna is before knowledge. So the knowledge before knowledge, the knowledge after knowledge, has to do with accumulated knowledge or with accumulated self. So if we go back to before I created me, who am I? Who am I when I don't know who I am? It's a very important question because our attachments have everything to do with what I know to be me. So what if we put that aside as we need to do every time we see Zazen? Put aside all the known. And as we say, the the purpose of practice is to become an idiot. Through and through, an idiot. Now how amazing is that? How freeing is that? That is true lightheartedness. And then everything is open. Everything is possible. So, any comments? Yes, Margot, good morning. Um,
7: as one of the, the eight who are engaged currently in Jukai study, I'm certain you created this morning exactly for us, <laughs> exactly for us, you know, as I, as I go through this process and I, and I'm sure however I'm doing it is not the way and I'm sure, however my understanding it is, is just not it. And, um, I'm just grateful. I, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be reminded that I can set all that down. And be here not waiting for some other epiphany, uh, uh, something that has an answer, and and just be here. And I'm grateful for as I look at each of the faces before me, I'm I'm just grateful for this space and the opportunity to be here um, looking with all of you. So thank
0: you. Thank you. Appreciation uh, often is a natural expression that comes out when we realize that we don't know anything. Thank you. So yeah, actually Mizumi Rashi was once asked what is advanced practice and he said appreciation. Mm. That is advanced. So thank you. Jeremy, good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to just um, uh, share some thoughts I was having about footsteps also. Um, It's interesting to me to think about um,
4: footsteps and following them because it has this um, natural implication of past and future within it. You know, the footsteps would only exist in the past and the following only exists in the future. And so that sense of um, separating them and trying to find those things when they don't exist is um, a place we get trapped. I've also been thinking a lot about the sense of the Buddha being ever-present. Mm-hmm. And those words have been really interesting to me because I think, you know, thinking of ever-present, we think always there. But, you know, if you get to the bigger sense of there, mm-hmm. that sense of this is it, um, that is very interesting. Um, and I was listening, thinking about Rizan's, um talk about his history and how he had come here and that, Push back against idolatry and, um, thinking about the Buddhas that are in his yard and them being that reflection of him and finding those moments. But as long as they're separate, as long as we have these two ideas of it's me and then it's the Buddha, um, there's that conflict, but that moment of merger, um, is, is the magic and so when i think of that i'm thinking a lot of like those times in life where we all get to see that magic that moment where we have a distinct difference from one thing to the other Mm -hmm. and those moments exist all the time that's what ever present feels like to me but the moments where i feel ever present are like watching the sunset or the sunrise Mm -hmm. and that's a moment where we know that there's a day moving to night but that merger brings us to the spot that is just there. And I'm just so appreciative of that. So what is
0: wanted to share. Thank you. So, you know, there's something that we have to uh, dissolve over time and practice is that is our conceptual understanding of a Buddha. What is a Buddha? Right. And, you know, when we say the word, it is natural that the connotation or understanding or conceptual understanding will arise with the word, whether we hear the word or say the word. And, and often at the beginning of practice, it connects to someone who lived 2,500 years ago, right? And then we follow that or the footsteps of that, whatever, or the teachings of that person. That over time has to uh, disintegrate and it, it disintegrates into this moment. It disintegrates into our own actions, into our own, the life of our own body. Right? Or, 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 or this existence. Or the flowing of, your, of the blood in your veins. It has to dissolve into that. It, as long as it doesn't dissolve into this one here, then there's always a gap. And then they may be, may be longing for something else. I am not there yet. I cannot be like that. right? This is too much. You know How can I, with my karma or my conditioning, be like that? right so so the gap has to shrink and shrink and shrink to a point of going nowhere going nowhere not wanting anything else other than this and not even wanting this so we can begin by if you if you have to want fine then want this can you want this and then when when we do that for a while now let go of that as well, and then there is a sense or an, uh, a sense of merging, uh, an experience of merging. Christine, good morning. Good morning.
7: Um, I
8: I wanted to share um, some imagery I was having while you know this morning during my talk, and I, I realized it's 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 both developing and it's also vanishing. Um because in some time I'll probably forget what I was <laughs> even visualizing. But um as we're talking about same and different and um kind of visualizing you between, you know, yourself between something that's same and different, your hands and you know, digging your feet into the sand without following without seeing a trail of footprints. Mm-hmm. Um kind of just digging your your feet solid into the ground. Um, that you know you can't be same and you can't be different. You're you're really kind of in the middle. Um, it just had this you know visualization of that, and um, you know, because as I said, it was developing as we were talking, um, but also you know vanishing as we're we're it's ever changing. Just wanted to share that.
0: Thank you. So, being here and then vanishing from here, as we merge with this, right? Um, I think it's interesting how words uh, like no, uh, nobody or nowhere can trigger some things in us, and, uh, and I want to connect that to the uh, commentary from Sheng Yi about that, who said, if you concentrate on nowhere for 10 minutes or 30 minutes or, or an hour, or even a day or several days you will meditate on the state of nowhere from nowhere you will go from delusions to to the truth so if we concentrate on what we may feel an aversion to right nowhere or nobody or i am nobody if we if we truly sit with that we will realize or we will experience expansion the the expansion from the the small sphere of delusion to the wide, all-encompassing sphere of realization. That wherever we are includes everything and everybody. That nowhere is not a negation. It's actually a complete and total affirmation of everything and everybody. So it is inclusive rather than shutting anything out it is all-embracing. And then he says, you will see that delusions and suffering also come from nowhere and that they are empty. In the same way, the self is empty, the world is empty, the sky is empty, mountains and rivers and the whole earth are empty. Nowhere is also empty. Thus, nowhere is able to eliminate conceptual knowledge. And once conceptual knowledge is eliminated, we can realize the way. Mm-hmm. It's actually very clear. Right? We, we, we have this idea of I have to understand, <clears throat> well, I have to have some understanding of no self. Or I like no self or I don't like no self. Now, all that gets in the way because all of it is just mental gymnastics that send us going around in circles. And the way to, to transcend that is actually to sit with it rather than to try to figure it out, to sit with that. Is that really a problem? Or is that really a question? Where is the issue with that? And then, as long as we sit with that and stay, stay, stay with this, then something starts to dissolve. Then the barrier uh, falls away. And then we, we actually realize that there is no issue. And I don't have to work so hard to create a self or to put a head on a head as we do. We, we exhaust ourselves, creating a self, and defending it tooth and nail. <laughs> so much wasted energy. Myogen. Sorry,
5: thank you. Um, Christine, you just gave me this wonderful uh, visual of footprints by the ocean where this vastness just constantly washes footprints away, where it washes um, concrete away, washes it away for us constantly. So I wanted to thank you for that. That was really very insightful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So are we moving on or is there any last word on that? So we're gonna give, on this chapter, we'll give Thich Nhat Hanh the last word. Um, he says, sometimes the Tathagata is defined as coming from suchness and going to suchness. This is meant to show us the nature of no coming and no going of all things. The ideas of coming and going cannot be applied to suchness. Suchness is suchness. How can suchness come and go? Suchness, thusness, or is or the way things are... So far the Buddha has talked about equality, non-duality, attachment to the view of permanence, and attachment to the view of annihilation. Now he tells us that reality is neither coming nor going. This truth does not apply only to the Tathagata. It applies also to all dharmas, all objects of mind. All of it does not come, does not go. So what are we trying to let go of? If it it is a creation of mind or conceptual creation, why should we try to let it go? The trying to let it go creates something or fortifies something that we we think we have to let go of. And we work very hard to try to let go of what's not there to begin with. How do I transcend the self is is actually a, a rely, that statement is relying on the assumption that there is something there to transcend or to let go of, and that is that is creating what we're trying to let go of. So smoke that for a while, put that in your pipe. All right, chapter thirty. Furthermore, subuti. If a noble son or daughter took as many worlds as there are specks of dust in a billion-world universe, and by an expenditure of limitless energy ground them into a multitude of atoms, Subhuti, what do you think? Would there be great a great multitude of atoms? Uh, Subhuti replied, "So there could, or so there would, uh, Bhagavan. So there would, Sugata." Where would be great multitude of there would be great multitude of atoms. And why? If a great multitude of atoms existed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata would not have spoken of a multitude of atoms. And why? Bhagavan, this multitude of atoms of which the Tathagata speaks is, is said by the Tathagata to be no multitude. Thus it is called multitude of atoms. Also, Bhagavan, this billion world universe of which the Tathagata speaks is said by the Tathagata to be no universe. Thus, it is called billion world universe. And how so? Bhagavan, if a universe exists, existed, attachment to an entity would exist. But whenever the Tathagata speaks of attachment to an entity, the Tathagata speaks of it has no attachment. Thus, it is called attachment to an entity. And the Buddha said Subhuti, attachment to an entity is inexplainable or inexpressible, for it is neither Dharma nor no Dharma. Foolish people, though, are attached. And then I just want to read something from Tignatana about that. This passage is very important. At the time of the Buddha, It was thought that matter was formed by coming together of atoms. Most people still think that way. Under proper conditions, atoms come together to form a table or a teapot. When we perceive a table or a teapot, we have an image in our mind of atoms coming together. That image is called a compound. Compound and atoms, an atom thus become two opposite concept. Only by seeing that atoms and compounds are not in themselves really atoms and compounds can we be freed from our erroneous concepts or duality. If we think that everything, that anything is really a self-existent composite, we are caught by our attachment to that object of mind. We cannot make any statement about the true nature of reality. Words and ideas can never convey reality. This passage of the Sutra describes the indescribable nature of all things. If we base our understanding of reality on our concepts or particles, atoms or composites, we are stuck. We must go beyond all concepts if we want to be in touch with the true nature of all things, which is none other than our true nature. So, does this work? Do we understand what is being said here? Okay, Daibo, good morning. We haven't heard from you. <laughs>
3: Good morning, everyone. okay. Um, so I just want to read a little bit of the commentary for a second, and then talk about it. Zen masters swallow the world and all its mountains and rivers. And the reason they can do this is because mountains and rivers do not themselves exist, but are simply names we give to momentary combinations of causes and conditions that are themselves momentary combinations of causes and conditions. So, um, a, a lot of what I do and maybe some of you do as well is we kind of, we label things, right? And once we label something, we can understand it and then we can use it. We can put it on a shelf and it's a definition of, of something that we use. Um, and what that does is it, it makes it so we don't see the thing that we are actually experiencing. We only recognize it and we recognize it based on, um, the definition that we've given it. So, you know, a simple example would be, you know, something that, or someone you see at work every day, you know, um, Nancy, right. Oh, there's Nancy, right. You don't we don't really see Nancy, we recognize Nancy, because we've defined her as something and that's what she is. Um, And we do this in our entire lives um, with the way that things are. So, um, you know, a a good way to experience this, I think, um, in the sense of not getting caught up in Um, these labels or these definitions is to always feel like you're experiencing the thing for the first time, right? Um, Similar to what we talked about in the last chapter, you know, no coming and going. um, You know, I like to think of it as as I'm always arriving, right? With each step, with each experience, with each interaction, I'm always arriving at that uh, moment. And because I'm always arriving, I don't know where I am. So I kind of dwell nowhere if you think about it in that sense. Um, so um, for me, it's it's really being cognizant of the labeling and and recognizing rather than uh, seeing or directly experiencing. Thank you.
0: Thank you. so so constant state of becoming, right? Yeah. So the constant state of becoming uh, includes in it a constant unknown, unknowable. It's unknown because it is constantly becoming. I am becoming as it. Not with it, but as it,
3: right? It is
0: becoming as me.
3: Yeah. So there's an inherent improvisation to the entire exercise, you know, because there, as we talked about before, there are no footsteps to follow. So you're kind of making your own footsteps as you go. Mm -hmm. And um, to to avoid the trap Um, you know, that labeling and preconceived notions, um, you know, that we fall into with that kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, to feel like you're always arriving to a new place or always becoming new in every um, step or experience Mm -hmm. or situation, um, I, I think can be very helpful.
0: Yeah, and it's helpful. And uh, you brought up Nancy, right? All I know about Nancy is, is is it has to do with with what I know, but what? But I actually don't know Nancy. That's the reality. I don't know. I think I know. Hence, I'm trapped. Right. L. Thank you, Diabo. Um This made
2: me. As you were speaking, it made me realize that, um, often the record, I think that I recognize someone and then they do something that I expect, but often someone does something that makes me uncomfortable. And then I tell the story of recognition afterwards. So going off of hypothetical Nancy, if Nancy's a coworker that is sometimes rude to me, I might tell the story to my friend later saying, yeah, I saw Nancy at work, and she was a real, and they'd be like, of course, Nancy, she's always mean to you, but actually, I think probably how I experienced it in the moment is that I saw this person, and then they did something that made me uncomfortable, and then I thought to myself, oh, I should have expected that. Nancy's always that way, and I tell that story because I'm uncomfortable, Um, but in some ways, it's, uh, it's like, what is all this commentary? Why are we doing all this commentary? What is the purpose of that commentary? Really, um, regardless of what story we tell about it, we are with Nancy for the next couple hours. Um, and yeah, that's, that was just uh, helpful for me. Um, thank you.
0: Thank you. So what I know about Nancy uh, begins with what I know about me. Because I- including in the knowing of me is the knowing of you, right? That in- that that's with it, right? If I don't know me, I don't know you. So I have to begin with not know, with being okay with not knowing me. Or with realizing that as much as I know me, all of it is conceptual and is just a tiny fragment of this endless reality, right? So if I am okay with not knowing me, I can be open to not knowing you, which means I can allow you, your appearance, to be fresh, to be new, now. Right? And the knowing... Um, it actually even goes, through, like in the Jewish tradition, um, you're not supposed to utter the, the the word God. A lot of people don't know why, but they just follow that. but. It's actually not that complicated and it connects very well with what we talk about because if we say the word God, we think we understand that. We have a conceptual image of that and we are trapped by our own conceptual image of it. So to not say the word is to, to stay away from that uh, formation of conceptual ideas, right? And, 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 it, and it helps us to not fixate. Or to say words with an understanding that the word is just provisional for the time being, but it's really not describing reality. It's helping me function. That's all. Words are there to help us function. They're not there to describe reality or to to be something in lieu of an experiential reality. They're there to help us navigate so we can function together as human beings. That's all. But it's definitely not a way to understand. The way to understand is to stand under. The way to understand is to, it, only to experience. It comes down to experience only. Which means well, we don't have to really understand. We just have to function. Be, experience, flow, merge. Anyone else? <clears throat> well,
1: it seems the other part of um beginner's mind is beginner's world, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we were just getting toward. I think that not only do I have to approach each moment as as though I were experiencing for the first time, but it is. It only exists to be experienced as for the first time. So Mm -hmm. what I was just saying about Nancy, I thought was really good that what we want to do is prepare for the next moment, which is impossible because the next moment is gonna be totally new. So Mm -hmm. we wanna carry this idea of Nancy into the next moment so we'll be successful in dealing with Nancy or dealing with the people we live with or dealing with whatever, um, when that's impossible uh and and we keep doing this over and over and over again um because that's the way the whole world around us seems to be working is you're supposed to be prepared for the next moment when the next moment is um unpreparable you can't you it's it's going to be new and different so in bringing our consciousness of our own beginning um uh, we have to also extend that to the world uh that um its combinations of atoms and compounds or whatever um has no inherent stability to it that we can understand and that what we're going to encounter is something new that has never been before i think maizumi says there's eight billion moments in the day or something right the world is changing eight billion times Uh, um it's an interesting image
0: Mm -hmm. expect the unexpected that's guaranteed. Are we okay with that? The next moment, we don't know. This we don't know. Is that a threat to us? Is that or can we rest in this? Right, that's what we need to examine. How well, how do I how do I feel about this? Am I okay with this?
9: Right can I say something
0: of course major yeah. morning
9: <laughs> the reason just brought up a point that kind of triggered something in me um uh, sometimes sometimes we have a conversation with ourselves about well, the next time i run into this person be mm-hmm. nancy or you can um, substitute Nancy for whoever you want to substitute for. The next time I'm going to run into this person, I'm going to give this person a piece of my mind. Mm -hmm. And you have all this dialogue. You have all this huge conversation about what you're going to say to this person. And you spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to deliver this information just right to maybe persuade that person to act differently or to, or respond differently or to have a change of heart or a change of mind or whatever. And then you run into the person and every, all that dialogue that you had, Mm -hmm. like, where is it, (laughs) you know, where did it go? It's like, I I, I invested a lot of time into this conversation. So now where did it go? Where is it? Mm -hmm. And the the, uh, opportunity that's before you at the moment present is totally different right? So you sit there and I was like, wow, that I could have used that uh, time a little bit more productively and just wait for the opportunity to come and see, you know, what was going to transpire. So I totally like, when, when he was speaking about that, I was like, oh my God, how many times have I done that, you know? And it just, uh, it just gave me a chuckle because it just, it just hit me. And I was like, wow, you know, so... Who who ended up with the peace of mind, you know? <laughs> whatever I, whatever story I created, or whatever conversation or dialogue, uh, it became nothing, you know. Now, now I'm here before you, and I have nothing to say, you know, because I said it so many times before, you know. So now I have nothing to say to you, you know. So it's it kind of kind of made me think, I and mean, that's my my ten cents in there.
0: Thank you, but, thank you. Yeah. So it was nothing, it became nothing.
9: It was nothing. And it became nothing. nothing. But in
0: between that nothing and nothing, we create uh, lots of complications and suffering between the two nothingnesses. Uh, Enkai, you raise your hand. Yes, thank you. Um, Yeah, and thinking about this not knowing, you know,
6: knowing... You begins with knowing me, but then not knowing, uh, and the beginner's mind. Um, and oftentimes when, uh, the concept or this, you know, the sense of beginner's mind comes up, I often think of Gordon's, uh, Yu's father, um, who's actually making the Rakusu rings, um, because he kind of has, uh, just, you know, naturally or through time or whatever has gone on with him. He has the, uh, lots of moments of being very like Zen master-like. Um, and, uh, one, one, you know, sort of concrete, uh, example would be when maybe he's working with wood. So he happens to be making the Rakusu rings, um, and that, you know, any like sculptor working with a piece of marble or, or him sitting down with some wood is that the skillfulness of being able to work with that wood. Even if you have lots of experience, if you can't sit there and look at what that, particular piece of material needs and how it's working in that moment, if you just treat it like some other piece of wood that you worked with in the past, then you won't end up really, you know, finding the right uh, piece to cut out or for, you know, for the form, you don't know how to work with it. So you have to come with that beginner's mind to just see what is actually there in front of you and so he can have all of this experience and yes, it comes to the table and it, it teaches him something, but it mostly teaches him to be, to start afresh and start new. Same thing with, you know, their basement, you know, also then also is the dark room and that going in there uh, to make a photograph. If you go in and just do things without looking at the materials and what you have in that moment, you won't be very skillful in making a photograph. Um. And, the, and I could say that both of his parents are good at this, is that they don't have a lot of expectations of people. They kind of are just these, like, neutral beings that you just can, like, be around them. And then they're just kind of like, oh, okay, that's how it is. Okay. Um, and there's, you know, maybe this Nancy character uh, in our lives that if we... Because he really wanted me to bring up Nancy. But um, <laughs> if... if uh, we have an idea about this person, we will act in subtle ways uh, in order to have that person potentially manifest even more in the way that we don't want them to behave in particular, right? That's an easy. So that if we expect them to uh, be mean, then we will do little things that might make them feel separate from us. And then they'll end up more likely to be uncomfortable and be mean or whatever, um, when really they're just acting from a place of discomfort because we've kept them at a distance, Mm -hmm. but that if we don't have expectations for other, how other people are going to manifest in that moment, then they, um, you know, there's certain people that when you're around them, you can be a better version that you feel like it's a better version of yourself. And it's somehow that they just like, you know, if you can be that sort of mirror or something neutral, uh, if neutral works, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, just the, just the sense that If you just start there with the beginner's mind, the freshness, the openness to it, whether it's a piece of wood in front of you or another human being, that that kind of the best can arise in that moment. Um, The healthiest, most harmonious, somehow transformative thing can happen.
0: Thank you. Going beyond those concepts or conceptual images that we hold on to actually enables us to Express and experience unconditional love. That's really the bottom line of this. you know, we talk about compassion, love, caring, kindness, all of it naturally flows when we let go of our conceptual images of ourselves and each other. This is the barrier. This is why we we act like mad or like crazy bunch of people walking around hurting each other. Because we hold on to, to, we attach to concepts. Concepts of self, concepts of other. All of it is made up. Me and you, as a concept, is made up. And when we can remove that, or see that there's nothing there to be removed, better yet, then all that's left is just an expression of love. Without even calling it love. In other words, we get in our own way. We've heard many times before. So we are wrapping up this chapter. And I want to just read a couple of things. Bill Porter said, The Buddha has finally brought us to his own body, <clears throat> the body of a Tathagata, which, which neither comes nor goes, and which is our own true body. It is none other than you. It has to come down to this again and again. It has to come home. As long as it's not, it's, a, it's another concept we're trying to fit in with the many other concepts we have in our heads. But having negated any attempt to define such a body in dynamic terms, he turns to static definitions. He knows people will try to view such a body in terms of its unity of form or in terms of its multiplicity of elements. Hence, he provides this example using the largest and the smallest entities known to his audience, to us. And uh, Huyneng, the Buddha speaks of a billion world universe to show that the number of particles of dust in the natures of all beings is like all the particles of dust in the billion worlds of the universe. The particles of Illusory thought in the nature of all beings are thus no particles of dust. Those who hear this sutra and realize the way advance toward enlightenment with the ever-shining light of wisdom. Thought after thought they remain unattached and free of impurity. Such purified dust is what is meant by a multitude of dust. So... I think we will uh, leave it at that so we can wrap it up and we will uh, continue and end the sutra uh, in our next meeting. Okay, so thank you and uh, yeah, dive back into it, see where it takes you and then the next time we will uh, finish the last two chapters and wrap it up and, uh, and actually have a discussion about what, uh, what have we learned from this? All right so the next the next time we meet we will uh, wrap it up together thank you